Support for Curious Objects comes from Christie's. On October 22nd, Christie's New York will present the live auction of Dalva Brothers, Parisian Taste in New York, a landmark sale of 18th century French furniture, porcelain, and sculpture. The much-anticipated sale will include fine examples of French and European furniture, Sevres porcelain, Chinese works of art, clocks, sculpture, and fine art. Viewings are open at the Rockefeller Center Galleries by appointment only. In the meantime, explore the sales online at christies.com slash curiousobjects. Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. What is it that John Lennon, Greta Garbo, and the Louvre Museum all have in common? I'm sorry, I promise that's not the setup for a corny joke. The answer is that they all shopped at Dalva Brothers. Uh, For decades, this New York City family business has been a pilgrimage destination for lovers of antique French uh, furniture and decorative arts. And now Christie's is hosting an expansive sale of some of the firm's extraordinary objects uh, taking place in their New York showrooms on October 22nd. The sale includes some 250 lots, and the estimates range from the thousands to the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Lot 65 is a late 18th century secretary cabinet with remarkable Pietro Dura decoration, uh, estimated at 600000 to a million dollars. Here to tell me what all that means and what makes this cabinet and this sale so special are Jody Wilkie, Christie's specialist and uh, co-chairman of Decorative Arts, and David Dalva, uh, whose last name alone serves as a strong introduction. Um, David, if I were to characterize 18th century English decorative arts with just a few adjectives, I might say something like uh, restrained, uh, formulaic, precise, and I wonder, um, how would you characterize the French decorative arts? Well, I would have to say um, magnificent, um, exciting, contemporary. Um, I don't think, you know, they really held back in terms of, of trying to do the most they could to make a piece, um, you know, really you know, a masterpiece. If you look at Louis XIV in Versailles, I think that really set the the standard that France followed for the next um, hundred or so years in, in terms of the decorative arts. Yeah, well, so tell me about, um, you know, the, the Dalva Brothers inventory focuses predominantly on the 18th century. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, there were great French craftspeople before and after that period. Um, so what is it that makes the 18th century so special in your eyes? Well, I think um, they kind of synthesized what it was earlier and really, you know, brought it to a new plateau. And um, I think out of all of the decorative arts in Europe, they really um, achieved, um, you know, perfection in so many different levels. Porcelain and furniture and textiles and architecture and gardening and everything was done to, you know, very, very high standards. Um, and I think they really excelled at that. And and when I asked you um, earlier for a single piece in the sale that you might want to focus on for this conversation, 
Um, you you didn't hesitate. You went straight for this secretary cabinet. Um, so we'll be talking a lot about it today. But um, just for starters, can you tell me um, in, in just a few words uh, what it is that made that such an obvious choice for you? Was it was it the value of the piece? It's it's importance, the history around it. It's it's sheer uh, aesthetic appeal. I think there's a lot of different reasons why it's, it's, it's such a great piece. I mean, design-wise, um, it, it really brings together earlier periods as well as the neoclassical period that was going on by, you know, the use of the earlier 17th and 18th century Italian pietadura. Um, some of the design elements, uh, you know, just really are, are at the peak of, of what was happening in the Louis XVI period. And it, um, it's really just overall just, you know, very interesting on so many different levels. So let's, um, for the benefit of our listeners, um, let's take a step back and and talk about the appearance of the object itself. Um, so Jody, um, Jody Wilhe, can you tell us uh, what the piece looks like and and how large it is and and what the images are that are depicted on it? Um, easily, I say easily because there's so much to talk about. Um, if, if anybody's listening and near a computer, if they actually went onto the Christie's website and found the Dalva sale and looked at Lot 65, they would find the images that I'm going to try and describe for you. I think one of the words that um, David could have equally used for describing the French decorative arts was the word exuberant. And yet this piece, because it is... Um, slightly later in the 18th century, has a very, um, you can't say restrained, because it has unbelievable layers of decoration. It's basically a rectangular cabinet that sits on top of a table with six legs instead of four. And there is a, a lower level that's like a stretcher that also serves to um, support the weight of a cabinet. Pietradura means hardstone, and what this cabinet looks like when you look at the front is small panels that are basically paintings made out of inset colored stones so that the corner rectangle panels are flowers. In the center... Top and bottom, there are bouquets that are tied together with ribbons and leaves. At the side are personages in Turkish garb. And in the center is a a harbor scene with a little huntsman with a rifle and his dog. And each of those panels, sort of, uh, their pictures on their own, almost like little postcards, are set within a gilt bronze frame with an added layer that is beading. That entire scene is set within a frame itself that's even more gilt bronze. Um, the word in French is a rinceau, which is when you have a border of a repeating pattern. And with this, it's a pierced pattern the top of the table that supports it has a fretwork going across that's applied to the drawers that support it. It sounds, the way I'm describing it, as if it's 
got so much going on that you can't even look at it. But in person, it has this really um, elegant proportion and it's not overwhelming at all. It really grabs you and makes you, I think tactile might be another word that you could use to describe French furniture. You really want to touch it. There's all kinds of different textures going on and it's just a dream. And all of the colored decoration are more or less at eye level. It's not a huge piece of furniture. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a fairly geometric piece. And um, I, I like that word exuberant. It's, it's not, uh, I wouldn't say flamboyant in the way that I sometimes think of French uh, decorative arts from this period. It's, it's not sort of going off in every which direction and curling and swirling and all of that. It's, it's, um, it's fairly staid, maybe. Well, it's really, it's it's because it's transitioning between what's called the Rococo, which is that exuberance that you were mentioning, and um, the Neoclassic, which was a looking back into um, antiquity. Yeah, so and, let's and talk... And this kind of straddles, straddles both fences. The colors of the stones are really rich. The The... Hard stones that are used are lapis lazuli and carnelian, and so there's rich orange and shades of blue and shades of green. And when you look at a photograph of it, you would never think that it was inlaid pieces of colored stone that were making those pictures. Right. They look more like a painting. What's really so exciting about this piece is its appearance is exactly as it was the day it was made. I mean, there's nothing to fade on this piece. The ebony is black, and everything else is ormolu and um, marble, which, you know, is, it looks as good as the day it was made. So it's a very interesting example of a piece of furniture that really retained its original um, look and aesthetics from the 18th yeah. century. You know, so many pieces, even the porcelain-mounted ones, they're, the marquetry is faded, and the staining has faded, and so you get an idea of what it was like. But, but with this piece, there's really no there's no question of, of what it what it looked like when it was made. Yeah, it's a, a sort of time capsule. Exactly, and the bou the bouquets that I was describing that are tied with ribbons, exactly the same kind of design that you get with marquetry, where you'll have wood doing the same thing but as david said originally it was stained and richly colored and now with time it's kind of shades of brown so um we've talked about the pietra dura which is sort of the 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 singularly striking uh, visual element um but uh the, the the origin of this piece is not all with one maker um in in fact, you know the the Pietro Dura, as, as you've mentioned, is Italian, uh, while the the woodwork and the the ormolu and the gilding is is French, um, and and really, a, numerous people uh, were involved with the production uh, of the piece. So t tell me about who these people were and and um, when they were working and how this all came together. Well, Adam Weisweiler is the evidence. And he's uh, born in, in Germany and came to France and um, was one of the, the premier ebonists of the Louis Seize period. Um, Daguerre was, and and to just define the, the term ebonite for me. 
Uh, Evidence is someone who um, basically works with um, veneers and um, are kind of different than joiners, and um, there was a whole guild system. And many of the many of the greatest uh, makers were were foreigners that foreigners that came to France and, and settled and and did very well making furniture. And you know, I think the, the French really were only interested in the, the the end product. You know, who could make the best piece? And lots of these pieces went through many many different hands to to be completed. The bronze makers, the the, the, the joiners who, who put the wood, the cabinet together, and then the, the people that did marketry. So it was a very complicated guild system, um, and a lot of cooperation was needed to, to make these pieces. And the, the Pietra Dura um, itself, uh, that, that came from Italy, right? Yeah. So the dealer, Daguerre, you know, probably had a collection of these things just like he did with porcelains and um Various uh, designs were were presented to clients with different materials, lacquer, marble, porcelain. And basically the dealers would commission um, a maker, an ebonist, to to combine all these elements and and make a piece of furniture. Yeah, so we're we're talking about um, Daguerre, this dealer, Dominique Daguerre. And and would he have originated the idea to, to create this piece and to commission... Weisweiler and um, and others to uh, you know create the necessary components and and then put them together. Um, yes, I mean these these things were a, a continuing dialogue between collectors and the dealers and um, what was popular, what was doing well. The Sez factor, I think you know Jody can tell you that the plaques were you know very expensive to produce and you know were really a sign of of a luxury item and so the dealers would would buy these and order them in, in fact and then um make designs for furniture which would then be sold to the public or to the royal family so yeah maybe Jody maybe you can tell us a little more about the production of those Pietra pieces because it it really was painstaking is hugely painstaking and and let me see how to how to describe you you have colored stones and the same way of a veneer for wood is a a slice right so when you have french furniture um in particular 18th century french french furniture um where you'll have these beautiful designs set into the tops or into the drawers or into the sides there will be a whole design and they work out how to do it. With the Pietra Dura, it's a similar thing, but they're using colored stones. And if you look at the photograph of these, there's a carnation that is on the bottom flower panel on this piece of furniture. If you think of what a carnation looks like, the petals of the flower are not normally a solid color. You'll get white shading into pale, pale pink, shading into darker red edges. That is exactly what the craftsman has been able to attain using colored stones. And if you look very closely, you can see where one piece of stone has been let in next to another. 
but it's also a question of knowing the stones, knowing how to cut them to take advantage of the natural coloration that comes in the stone. Um, and that is the real art and craftsmanship of it. The, the difference between Pietra Dura and Mosaic is that Mosaic is pictures that are made of tiny little tiles. This is almost more difficult because it's large sections and you need, you need to know the stone and how to cut it in order to take advantage of the changes in color that are occurring naturally. So how they did that, I mean, to me, it's magic. But, but it's all of these craftsmen were at the top of their game. And it, you would have somebody like Daguerre that had sort of a stable of people that he worked with regularly. And he knew he could introduce new ideas and that they would take those ideas and figure out how to make them work. And, and it's not that dissimilar, I guess, if you had to think today of what is the equivalent of a daguerre. He was called a marchand mercier, um, meaning that merchant that was putting everything together and relying on basically contemporary artists at the time to help him with his vision. So not dissimilar today, I guess, to use a contemporary person, somebody like the Lalan, who would conceive of a crazy idea of making a bathtub that looks like a hippopotamus, but then you need to have the plumber, the metal worker, the um, enameler that can figure out how to translate those visions into reality. And that was really what the, the French guild system was able to do. And it, there are still vestiges of it around. And it's not, it's not dissimilar also of something like the House of Hermès or of couture in general. At Hermès, you have the leather people, the wood people, the fabric people, and they all come together to create these you know, singular objects. With the porcelain, similar to the um, similar to the hard stones, what you created in the 18th century is what you're looking at today. Anything that's been fired does not change. It doesn't oxidize. It it looks today the way it did at the times. And and there you really had that balance between is somebody an artisan, a craftsman, or an artist, because these objects were going in and out of uncontrollable, very, very hot ovens multiple times to create what are basically paintings on ceramic. And it's wild how they were able to figure out what would make it work. And again, porcelain was used with the furniture. There was a huge um, conversation, I'll say, going on between all of these craftsmen. And if you look at the decoration that you find on pieces of porcelain, look at the textiles that were being woven in Lyon, which was the center of the textile industry in France, 
look at the silver work that's done and even you know compare the leg of a chair with a candlestick you can see the cross-pollination going on and stylistically how it all holds together so we're talking did answer to your uh, question. no no i appreciate it the, yeah the <laughs> I, I love that detail, um, and 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 talking about um, you know cross pollination between uh, d- different media, uh, different materials. You know that's always interesting to to witness, and and it's one of the appealing features of this piece that uh, you you have stonework, you have uh, woodwork, you have work with gilding, you have work with ebony, um, you have you know of course the the work to create the Pietra Dura uh, plaques in the first place, which. Um, uh, are uh, you know not all contemporary to the piece? Uh, some of them older. You know, the, to bring all that together is no, really no. They were quite... they were they as you said they were made in Italy. They were made at specific workshops that did nothing but the Pietradura. Um. Yeah, and and but they were stocked for Daguerre. He would he would buy you know numerous cabinets and take them apart. For Pietradura, the support them, mm. he would order whatever the factory could give him. So these were, you know, for the height of French furniture, for for you to use lacquer, porcelain, Pietradura, that was much more expensive than using uh, wooden marquetry to decorate mm-hmm. a piece of furniture. So these were all considered luxury items, and um, you know, the French at that time were incredibly into decoration. I mean, you know. Everything was kind of not—I wouldn't say competitive—but there was an amazing drive to impress with the clothing, with the property, with the interiors. I mean, you know, you hear stories about Gautier, the bronze maker, and you know how—I mean, if you're familiar with the Madame de Barry doorknob that they they had at the Frick collection for their wonderful uh, Gautier exhibition, I mean, the the amount of detail was amazing and. You know, that's really what the French decorative arts are about. It's just, you know, the more you look at it on a really great piece, the, the detail is just astounding. And there were there were really, there were no corner, corners cut. Everything was about the final product. Yeah, so I want to dive into this um, topic a little, a little further because, you know, we've been talking about this dealer Daguerre uh, bringing together all of these components, uh, work by various uh, craftspeople, pulling it all together into a, a single piece. Um, but, you know, Daguerre, I mean, he's he's Parisian, but uh, he's working with craftspeople from across the, the continent. He has clients uh, from across the continent, from uh, from England. Um, you know, he ends up spending a significant amount of time in London. Um, so clearly an international character uh, as much as he's, he's rooted in France. Um, so David... Is this cabinet would would you say it's characteristically French uh, according to those those terms you know the the idea of detail and so on that you're describing or or does it start to represent something like uh, you know an emerging uh, pan European style? No, I'd say it's it's very French. I mean, it, it's just it's all about what was going on at the time. That bringing together the best uh, craftsmen to to make your your idea come through. And, um, you know, the, the clientele then, there was really no expense spared to um, to give them the best quality uh, products that, that they could get. And um, Daguerre was supplying George IV and 
lots of royal uh, patronage and, you know, the clients wanted to have the best and, um, you know, he could provide it. So when English clients would, would purchase pieces from Daguerre, they were doing so because they wanted something very specifically French. Um, right. I mean, the French led the, the decorative arts world in the 18th century, I think, hands down. There's no, in my mind, there's no question about that. No, everyone, everyone would go to France to see what was the newest and, and they would then try and replicate it. So you'll get stylistically things made in Germany, in Sweden, in Italy that are inspired by the French, but they tend to be, there, there tends to be a, I guess you'd call it a lag in their adaptation of it because First and foremost, it came to people's attention in France and then slowly would filter across Europe. Uh, and everybody, everybody who's anybody wanted to be the first. <laughs> so they'd go to France. And Louis XIV and how Versailles was meant to um, show exactly what mankind could do if they put their minds to it. I mean, it's, you know, it's astounding. And it, it's just everything since then was keeping up that, that level of creativity and that, that quality. I'd like to take a moment to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to get updates as soon as we release a new episode is to subscribe on your preferred podcast app, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or something else. And if you leave a rating and a review on those apps, it can help bring curious objects to the attention of new listeners. So I'm very grateful for that. Again, you can see images of today's curious object at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast. And there's also a listener survey where we'd love to hear from you. Support for Curious Objects comes from Christie's. On October 22nd, Christie's New York will present the live auction of Dalva Brothers Parisian Taste in New York, a landmark sale of 18th century French furniture, porcelain, and sculpture. Approximately 250 lots have been selected from the firm's extensive inventory of 18th century decorative arts, collected over 80 years and across three generations. Dalva Brothers has sold to many of the world's great museums, such as the J. Paul Getty Museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Versailles, and the Louvre. The much-anticipated sale at Christie's will include fine examples of French and European furniture, Sev porcelain, Chinese works of art, clocks, sculpture, and fine art. Viewing is open by appointment only at the Rockefeller Center Galleries. In the meantime, please dive into Curiosities and browse the sale online at christies.com slash curiousobjects. Now, um, Jody, um, even when it comes to some of the most uh, fine and valuable pieces, it's it's not always possible to track the provenance. Uh, but with this cabinet, uh, we know, or, or at least we have strong reason to think that we know um, where it resided quite early in its history. Um, could you walk us through that? Um, what, what does the provenance look like and, and what's the evidence for it? Well, the, the provenance starts with Daguerre, and we know that because he did have a huge clientele in England. And he actually opened a shop in London. And 
I believe that it was on his death. At any rate, it was definitely 25 March 1791. This cabinet was sold by Christie's as lot 42. And we, in the, um, the Christie's catalog of 2020, there is a photograph of that 1791 catalog. What's amusing is that it doesn't look all that different than what our printed <laughs> catalogs look like today. Yeah, and, 230 and years. So uh... through that, you can, you can start tracking it. So if it was sold in 1791, for sure, it had to have existed before then. Presumably, it was in Daguerre's stock at that time. Whether he had sold it to somebody before and had brought it back, whether that was where it was starting out, I don't think that anybody knows. But there is an inventory for another dealer who was active then and buying a dealer called Rocheu. And then that was described in his estate inventory that was 1820. Slowly, you can, you can track these pieces. I don't know that we have any confirmed provenance of where it's been from 1820 on, but uh, I believe that it was with the Dalvas for quite a while before David would know better than I where where it was acquired. But this business of trying to track provenance is really key, particularly in today's market, because being able to link these objects to the history and the time period in which they were created really does help bring them alive. And it, it it's one thing to, you know, read in history books about you know, the the various wars in Europe in the middle of the 18th century and how people would have arguments that would erupt and it, these wars would go on for years and years and years. And until you start thinking about how people lived, where people lived, the furniture that they were sitting on, it, it allows you to have a real visual picture of of how this worked. And the idea of these luxury arts being something that would very much um, support the reputation of whole countries. They were used for diplomatic gifts. They were almost a source of trade and of value, both sort of the psychological value of the French and actual monetary value of the objects that was traded back and forth. And as I say, it, it's not just the furniture, it's all of these other luxury items that all link together. It makes it, it makes it come alive. The fact that so much French furniture is not necessarily on a huge scale, but on a small scale, because it was used in homes and it was meant to move around the room, I find fascinating. You know, I just like to, to say that provenance is, is wonderful and um, it really makes a, a fabulous story. Um, the thing to always look at is, is the quality of, of the finished product and how much detail and how much work that they put into it. Um, you could look at a bronze that's chased by Gutierrez and, and a bronze that is chased by someone else it could be the same model. Um, but, you know, it's, it's that detail of finish which really sets the bar. And, you know, there's so much that we don't know about provenance, but there's so much that is there to look at and to decide whether, wow, this is really an exceptional piece or 
you know, it's kind of run of the mill piece. Well, and and presumably, if a piece rises to a certain level of quality, that's a good indication that whatever its provenance was was probably fairly important. Exactly. These all of these things when they were created, these these major objects were they were not made for the man in the street to start with. Number one, the man in the street could never have afforded them to start with, nor would they have had the place to put them. Um, I I laugh with the with Sev porcelain, for example. Every the Sev factory was very much supported by the king, supported by um, his mistress slash slash best friend Madame de Pompadour. Um, and every at the end of every year, around Christmas time or the very beginning of the new year, the factory would have what I, you know, flippantly call the Tupperware party. And what it was <laughs> was the factory bringing out all of its major achievements throughout that year, and they would have a sale. And, and the aristocracy that was trying very hard to stay in good with the king, whose you know, support of the king meant the difference between being given a little attic room to live in at Versailles or very nice chambers because of the amount of support. They would go shopping specifically because this was the king's factory and they wanted to be seen to be buying. And and the Sev factory is fantastic for us now in the 21st century because they do have archival records that are searchable. And it's slightly frustrating because everybody thinks, oh, well, Sev has the sale records. We can just go and look up our piece because they also had a system of marking their pieces where you could tell the year in which it was made and ideally the painter who worked on it and the gilder who worked on it. The reality is the archives are available, but there are certain... um, chunks of years that are basically Swiss cheese, huge holes in them, or the descriptions, you have to figure these ledgers were not being written out so that 300 years later we could look through and go, oh, look, my my cup and saucer was made by Mr. So-and-so. It was a working ledger for a manufactory, and the descriptions are pretty bare bones. So you can very often find what you think is probably your object. And very often in comparing prices and decoration, you can fine tune it. But rarely do you come up with something where you're absolutely 110% sure that this piece written down in the manufacturing records is without any question this piece that you're holding in your hand. But more and more work is done on them, and slowly, by process of elimination, we're we're getting better and better at um, finding things in those records. That's funny. So, I was in example, just that exact same situation today, looking at a piece of uh, what I believe to be William Beckford um, commissioned silver, and there are matching descriptions, but. Uh, even if the description matches, sometimes that's not quite enough to get you there 100%. Right, but but it, but if you know that this one definitely was Beckford because it went from him to the daughter to the sale and the other one didn't, then maybe you can... It's, it's basically putting together a jigsaw puzzle. 
And it's one of the things that makes it so much fun. I mean, to me, it's fun. Somebody else might find it to be beyond belief, but I find it really fun. <laughs> well, we're all in good company here. Exactly. Um, so let's. Th- I, I want to talk a little bit about the um, the nuts and bolts of of the auction process. Um, you know, I, I mentioned at the top of the show that the estimate for this cabinet is is six hundred thousand to to a million dollars. Um, and I'm curious from you, Jody. I'm curious how how you arrive at that range. And from you, David, uh, I I'm curious. You know how that um, compares to you know what a reasonable sticker price would be in a retail setting. And and I imagine you've had these conversations uh, b- between yourselves as well. Many times. <laughs> we I must say, working on the Dalva sale has been a real treat. The The idea of a sale is something that was mooted nearly two years ago now. And slowly, slowly, the ideas germinated and it, it came together and we created a little team here at Christie's that was working on this particular project and spent many hours at the gallery, both going through the gallery, looking at each object and sitting with David, with his uncle, with his cousin and, and fine tuning what we thought would work best as a sale to put on the market in New York to start this process. And it I must say that when the catalog first came out, and for us it was very frustrating because, as you know, the sale was originally supposed to take place in the spring and needed to be postponed for obvious reasons. But the minute the catalog kind of hit the streets, as it were, we had clients calling us saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, I've wanted this forever, and this catalog is beautiful. It's all there. And to us, that meant that we had done what we needed to do, which was to draw attention to these objects. They were, we had long discussions on price and came up with estimates that we felt were realistic for today's market did justice for the objects and gave a sense of what, as David was saying, what is the difference between the top of everyone's game, the true, true masterpiece, and the pieces that were still good, but not that top, top, top. And it's a very difficult thing. What you're then talking about is connoisseurship, which is not something that is created overnight. But if the catalog, when someone looks through it, does give a sense of why these pieces are together and where the differences are, because there are several pair of Wormalu candlesticks. They don't all have the same estimate on them. What's the difference? We're hoping that we will, with this catalog, also be kind of educating a new generation that hasn't had the possibility of seeing the volume of French decorative arts that used to come on the market 30, 40 years ago on a regular basis. And the way to learn to love this is to to see it and to handle it. So we've had, I say we started two years ago, it, we've had a really great time with it. And, and 
our hope is that within the next two weeks, when the sale is over, everyone will also have had a good time and will be geared up for more. And David, um, do you have anything to, to add to that on, you know, in particular thinking about the um, the valuation of the cabinet? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, putting a price on something is always going to be tough, um, you know, and you have to find a happy medium. I don't think Christie's or Dalva knows exactly what the market's going to um, feel the secretary its value is. But, I mean, you know, putting a number on some of these things is, was probably the hardest part of it. I mean, yeah, you know. Um, but like I said, you know, you have to let your eye talk, you know. And, um, you know, over 75 years in business, you know, we're not satisfied with run-of-the-mill stuff. We, we really respond to unusual things because sometimes hard to sell things. Um, but you know that's that's what you used to go to a dealer for was their aesthetic, you know, was was their um, their eye, and um, that's why people went to Daguerre, you know, because you know he he had a fabulous eye, and fabulous sense of design, and you know it continues to this day. So you know pricing, you know that that's really the auction houses' uh, specialty. They they know the market. But I would just say, look, you know, it's, it's really, it's all about looking at the piece and falling in love with it. All these pieces have been, you know, happily found homes for almost 300 years. And, you know, we're, we're really just, you know, um, um, you know, temporary curators. You know, we, we've, we've been lucky enough to handle the stuff, to, to come in every day and be surrounded by these beautiful things. You know, my grandmother used to say, oh, you know, I love coming to work. It's like it's like a, an injection of B12, she always used to say, because, you know, it cheered her up just being surrounded by beautiful things. And, you know, that, that's what they were trying to do then, and that's what French 18th century furniture does now, you know. Even, even now, all of us, all of us here have been working from home since March, and when Christie's finally opened up and I was first able to go out to our warehouse because I had to continue work on the Dalva collection, walking in and being able to see a real object and not a picture on a computer screen was so fabulous. It, it, made, it made what should have been the chore of taking extra images for, in anticipation of requests um, be far from it. And it, it was like, you know, reacquainting yourself with old friends that you hadn't seen in forever. It was really wonderful. Yeah. You know, maybe one of the benefits of this um, being at home so much is really taking a good look at your surroundings and saying, you know, wow, we're here once, you know, um, is everything that I have around me, you know, do I love it, you know, or, or you know, can I, can I, change some things around and, and um, you know, get some beautiful pieces into my home. But um, now that I've been sitting around for six months, uh, you know, I, I could I could change a few things. Yeah. So we'll see. And that's what soon. Well, and Jody, you mentioned, you know, that the sale was postponed because of the pandemic. Um, you know, we've now seen uh, auction houses, including Christie's, adapting to new circumstances and, um, 
conducting uh, more online sales, online viewings, that sort of thing. There will be an in-person viewing um, for, for, for There's this. There's definitely an in-person viewing. And what we are doing, we're being, we've been open now to the public for several weeks. We actually, last night, just had a major sale of uh, 20th century paintings, plus Stan the T-Rex. But um, what we have done is been extremely, extremely careful about the number of people that we allow into the galleries. And we've set up the viewings for the exhibitions by appointment. And the sales themselves are held live the way we've always done it. But the public is not allowed to attend the auction. So bidding can be, as always, by sending in an absentee bid by being on the telephone with a specialist or by bidding yourself online, but the public can come to the view, they can't come to the sale. And what we've done is totally rejigged the room so that we can accommodate many more telephone bidders than normal. And each of those bidders has their own six foot table separated from the next six foot table and so far, so good. And I've been making appointments for people to come in to views for the next two weeks because we've got a whole run of sales that are culminating with uh, Dalva and the great 18th century. Yeah, well, it's been interesting to see, um, you know, sales have actually done maybe better than I would have expected or feared um, in, in, in recent months, in the last six months or so. Uh, there have been some some quite strong results uh, coming from ver- various auction houses, um, and so I, w- I wonder, you know, the timing. Uh, one might have thought that the timing for this sale would be terrible, and yet maybe maybe it's maybe it isn't. I, I wonder how you're thinking about that, and how how COVID is sort of changing your overall strategy. We, I mean, our overall strategy remains the same in terms of putting our clients' objects out at what we feel is the best time. But what we're realizing is the whole concept of the auction calendar that used to be a very organized um, affair, God forbid anything change, um, has been totally thrown up in the air and does not have nearly the power that it used to. We were having major sales at the end of July and in August. And now uh, these sales that are coming up in October, we're realizing that they are, it is the right time for them because there hasn't been anything of this type for so long that the market, I think, is really hungry for it. And, but, but what we've been very careful to try and do is make sure that that market does not get indigestion by having too much of any one kind of thing coming at the same time. So even though I say we have other sales that are coming up this week, there's nothing that really has the strength in the 18th century and the breadth of kind of objects that Dalva has. There are old master painting sales coming up, we are selling um, property from the collection of Jane Reitzman, but nothing that is on this scale with this um, breadth 
of object and with the depth of quality. So the fact that it is coming up at the end is kind of the the denouement of the whole the whole season. We're really looking forward to it. I appreciate the French vocabulary. David, um, you know, dealers, of course, are are intimately familiar with the auction process. Um, and, and yet, you know, this sale is quite a departure from the retail environment that um, Dalva Brothers has, has operated in uh, for a long time. Um, so I just wanted to, um, to, to close today just asking you a very general question of um, how you feel. I um, I feel good. I mean, I I'm really excited to see these pieces um, continue on with their pleasing people, and I think Christie's has been uh, really wonderful to work with. And I know Will Trafford, you know, has always been a, a huge um, fan of ours, and, and so I, I think everything is good. I really um, I'm looking forward to these uh, the next chapter of these wonderful pieces um, existing. Well, David Dalva and Jody Wilkie, thank you so much, and best of luck with the sale. Thank you. Next episode, we will be traveling to the UK for a conversation with the Fine Arts Society about works by Agnes Miller-Parker and Jessica Dismore, so stay tuned for that. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. 